Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 4. I'm your host, Casey Tigret. I am an author, pastor, and spiritual director. You are listening to this if you're listening in real time. If you're coming back to it later, that's fine. But if you're listening to this in real time, you're listening to this episode just over a month from an incident at the United States Capitol where a large group of what I'll call insurrectionists, although that's under debate, stormed the Capitol with the purpose of trying to reclaim an election that they believe, from information that they gained from various places, was stolen. Now, everything that we know now points to the fact that that was not the case. But this violence, this rage, all of it caught our attention. And especially the fact, for me, was seeing people with flags that said, Trump is my president, but Jesus is my savior, or some form of that, or people carrying the Christian flag, and we can talk about how problematic that is, but a flag that represents the Christian church in the United States, or people carrying their Bibles as they broke through barricades and wounded Capitol Police officers. And it brings us to the point of saying, we can no longer, as a country, say that we can separate faith from politics. It's just not going to work anymore. And this moment, above all, taught us that. And so I thought it might be good, as we think about what's happened in the last month, to hear from someone who has written on the subject of how faith and spiritual formation go together. And so that's why today I've invited Caitlin Schess to be on the podcast. We're going to talk about spiritual formation. We're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about how she got those two subjects connected and how we can begin to have a healthy, spirit-filled, integrity-filled, loving dialogue about how our politics form us into or form us away from the image of Jesus that we were all meant to bear. And so I welcome you to take some time and listen to this episode with my guest, Caitlin Schess. Caitlin, thanks for being a part of the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. We're sitting here talking, and I don't exactly know when this will go live, but this is a, for the subject of which you've written, this is a really interesting moment. Um, last week we had uh, the storming of the U.S. Capitol and all the things that have come out of that. So I'm sure we're going to get into that a bit, but it brings me back to the center point of the podcast, which is about wisdom. And so I want to start here. Um, if you if you were going to define the word wisdom, where would you begin? Yeah, I, I was thinking this morning, actually, I'm, I'm in my last semester of seminary. And as I'm starting to leave, I've really been thinking about how so much of the information and skills that I get here, we treat as if they're possessions of our own. And so I kind of have all this knowledge and, and wisdom, even in the sense of, um, you know, knowledge correctly applied. And, you know, I'll take that out into the world. And I've really been convicted lately of how I think real wisdom for the Christian is always, you know, an orientation and relationship to God and a context of a community. And so I'm, I'm trying to think as I leave seminary, not as if, okay, I have within myself, autonomous from anyone else, all of this knowledge that I can, and I also have the wisdom to correctly apply it, but instead to think the real wisdom would be my continual connection and dependence upon God and in the community that he's given me. And if I think I can kind of go out into the world without that and just, you know, do things correctly myself, um, which a lot of us, you know, that's kind of the stereotype of the the new seminary student that like knows all the answers and is going to go and fix all the problems. And so I've really been trying to, especially this last semester, think how am I making sure that I am in the practice for the rest of my life of feeling that anything that I know, anything that I know how to correctly apply in the world is the product of God and the community that he has placed me in to be dependent upon. There's a phrase that's been sticking in my head lately, which is that wisdom is a choir. It's always a, it's mm. always a gang of voices. I love that. Yeah. There's a, there's a, you know, a level of humility you have to bring to that too, to be able to say what you said. And, and I appreciate that, that 
it, I feel like, gosh, I felt the same way coming out of seminary. It's like, I'm ready. <laughs> I got all the arrows in the quiver. Just show me, point me in the right direction. And it only took about a year for me to be like, I don't know that I know anything. <laughs> <laughs> so in writing a book uh, like you did on politics and spiritual formation, and we'll get to the connection there, um, a lot of times when we see people involved in politics, the, the, the assumption is that there's a story of, you know, uh, coming from a political family or, you know, having this moment where you were a, a voter registration, you know, out pounding doors, getting people to sign. Where does the, we'll talk about the faith side, but where does the political discussion begin for you in your story? Yeah, I have pretty much always been interested in politics from when I was pretty, pretty young. I, my dad's in the military and him and I both had personalities where we wanted to kind of fight about political stuff. And um, we've kind of gone back and forth over time about how close in our opinions we are and how different we are. And, um, but I remember, I think it was like in middle school, I took a like philosophy, you know, in middle school philosophy class. And we all had to do a presentation on some political issue. And I had the death penalty and me and my dad really disagreed about this. And I did all this research. And part of what happened in the process of that research was just realizing, oh, there's like the ethics of this. There's the questions I care about as a Christian. And then there's the kind of practical political side of it. And that's when I kind of got interested more in the weeds of things of not just kind of the issues, but like, what does it really look like to be involved in that? And so I went to college thinking I was going to go to law school and, you know, either be practicing law or involved in politics in some way. Um, and it was right at the end of college that God really redirected me completely to seminary. And I thought, okay, I'm done with all that stuff. <laughs> that was my life before. And now I'm doing the kind of selfless, you know, I really had this romanticized idea of like, I'm going to seminary means like, I'm so much more godly. And like, that's the higher decision. You know, all of that was very quickly beaten out of me, but I did kind of come here thinking all of those things are, are done for me. And then 2016 happened for me in between college and seminary. And I, so I show up at the seminary in the middle of 2016 election and just was really convicted over how little conversations we wanted to have about it among my fellow students and, and people that we were, you know, having conversations in class or at the coffee shop. And yet I was in churches where I saw how much it was impacting people's spiritual lives. And I thought, okay, I'm not done talking about this. <laughs> Did, is, can you, can you point to what came first? Did, was there a faith development and then you stepped into politics? Did you already have this background of, of a Christian faith before you stepped into politics or did it go, how did that, how did that happen? I, I really think I became a believer at a really, really young age. And my parents will tell stories of like a change in me when I was, you know, four or five years old. And, and so now having worked in children's ministry myself and having seen that you can be a really young kid and one day, you know, you weren't a believer and the next day you were, and there's a change in you. And like, we should nurture, you know, your gifts and expect you to be serving, you know, you're a kid, but there's really some change there. Now that I've seen that. And I, I know from my parents' stories and my own experience, I think I had that faith really, really young. It developed as I got older for sure. Um, and in fact, that kind of time where I was wrestling with the death penalty, I was also wrestling with some other really tragic stuff that was happening in my own family and the reality of evil and kind of God's sovereignty and lots of questions. I just found some journals like a few months ago where I was just writing all these questions. It was like the same question over and over. It was not, you know, in depth or particularly impressive, but it was just like, how can I believe, you know, in this God when there's so much evil, how can I trust him? How can I understand his sovereignty? And so those questions were all kind of happening at the same time. And there were definitely, there was development in my faith at that kind of same age that the politics became involved. But I think even once those questions first started being asked, I look back and I'm so thankful that it was still coming from a place of faith. It wasn't really coming from, I have questions and until you prove my answers, I'm not going to believe. It was like the safety. And I'm so thankful for two really faithful parents that provided that, where it was like, I can ask questions and be safe because there's that faith underlying it for myself. And I have two faithful parents that aren't afraid of those questions. And um, so, yeah, I think even the very beginning of that interest in politics, the, the faith aspect was always there. It's, it strikes me, and this is one of the things that you bring up in the book, we we allow things like, we're getting better. I know a lot of the, not all of our listeners had the experience of having 
parents or church leaders who supported their questions. Yeah. But we'll allow doubt to shape our faith. We'll allow pain and um, struggles to shape our faith. But it feels like there's this division when it comes to politics, that it isn't something that we believe shapes our faith. We, we don't bring it into that conversation. But also that spiritual formation is not a linear thing. As sort of a, as you, as you pointed out, it's kind of a wandering. It started yeah. here, and these are all the many things about life that, that trickled into it. Where does that issue for, for Christians with the word political start? Why is there such a hang up? Why can't we bring that into our conversation? Yeah, I think when I first started thinking about a lot of this, I was mostly talking to, to people my age. And I think for them, initially, I thought the issue with the word political is just they grew up in churches or around churches. They were aware of churches that were very political, you know, that to be a Christian is to be a Republican. And they were very, you know, invested in like um, a culture war sort of mentality. And so then people my age were sort of like, oh, let's, you know, get out of politics entirely. But the more that I've thought about it, the more that I've read, I've realized that underlying some of that particular moment kind of issues is a deeper issue of the spiritual versus the material or the sacred and the secular and and thinking of political as like the mucky underbelly of the world. And you know, it's unfortunate we have to be involved in it. And even the kind of culture warrior, we have to you know fight in the political realm. Even those people can tend to have a sense of like, you know, we have to be involved in it, but it's so unfortunate because it's this messy, awful kind of thing. But some of us have to be the warriors that go and, you know, do it. And the more that I, the conversations that I tend to have in my church and in the seminary now start out with just, can we think about, yes, the way sin has impacted our communities, the way it's impacted our ability to do faithful things in those communities, to seek flourishing, yes, but could we maybe start first with what are the really kind of beautiful ways that from the very beginning, God created us to live in community, to seek the flourishing of the communities that we're in, to have tools and resources to do that with creation. And then can we say, you know, it's kind of like one of my first seminary classes, we talked a lot about, are we really starting in Genesis one or are we starting in Genesis three? And I think that's the kind of mentality we have, especially with politics as we start with sin, we start, start with evil in the world. And those are especially relevant questions for politics because most of our political work is like, you know, I wouldn't have to care about the death penalty if it wasn't for sin and evil in the world. So it makes sense that that, you know, permeates so many of our political conversations. But I think our difficulty with talking about it, and especially our difficulty talking about it when it comes to spiritual formation, is that we're like, this is this unfortunate reality that sometimes we have to be engaged in instead of starting with what are the kind of glimpses within that really difficult work of what it really means to be human to seek flourishing in communities, to kind of use the good gifts God has given us in creation to build new things, to be creative. Um, and if we start there, could we then maybe have a more productive conversation about it without thinking of it as just this mucky thing we have to do? Yeah. Yeah, you talked about trying to, at one point you were doing a project trying to create a curriculum for churches to engage mm -hmm. with politics. And most of what you found was of the ones that did do it, uh, of the resources that did try and engage with poli politics, it was typically a, here's the issue, here's the verses against it. Yeah. How, how did that, how did that propel you forward? Because that, that seems like a very Western rationalist way of handling things. What's the problem? What's the solution? <laughs> and can I prove it? And does it stand up? You know, is it evidence that demands a verdict? Is it that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that it, it made sense to me, you know, because I grew up in the church and I was aware of a lot of the political conversations. So when I found this stuff, it made sense. But after, you know, that was like my second, my first or second semester in seminary, and I was taking my first spiritual formation class and I was learning so much about how we are oriented towards the worlds by the things that we love. And there's kind of this less than rational uh, impulse that can draw us to stories or ideas or desires and, and how that's really the heart of a lot of historic Christian spiritual formation is like forming us through repetitive bodily actions that kind of make us love the right things that God would desire for us to love. And so I was learning all these things in a spiritual formation class and then in a separate class trying to find this curriculum and finding all these examples that were not only lacking really in just what is our foundation for thinking about 
human government, for thinking about human communities? Like what's the kind of, you know, beneath all the issues, what are the real kind of theological foundations for just human community? But also just thinking through a lot of the churches that are looking for this curriculum are looking for probably at least, you know, I live in Dallas where we've got a lot of difficult political <laughs> conversations in churches and a lot of, you know, pastors and leaders are like, okay, what can I do to kind of not just give my people information, but to maybe deal with some idolatry, some issues that are happening politically in my church. And they're coming to these resources. And instead of dealing with that, you know, that kind of lower register of really, what are the stories that are shaping your world? What are the desires motivating you? Instead, this curriculum was just, do you have the right answers on abortion? Do you have the right answers on gay marriage? And it made me realize like you could go through this curriculum, even if it had the best intentions, even if it was really trying to push people on, these aren't the only issues to care about. How do we have it? You know, even if it was trying to do the right thing, it could leave people just sort of checking the boxes. Yes, I agree. Yes, that makes sense. And not dealing with what is really shaping in your everyday life, the way that you are oriented toward the world, the fears you have, the desires you have. And, and so for myself, I, I ended up writing in that project, I don't know that curriculum is really going <laughs> to be the thing that deals with this right. I don't have all the answers. And that's why in the book, I tried really hard to not be super prescriptive about things because I want people in different communities to be able to ask better questions and think about things from a different perspective. But then just to say, instead of what's the quick fix of we're going to do a class or we're going to go through a sermon series, all of which could be really good things. But are we thinking on a more foundational level about are we really addressing these stories that are impacting our people that are really shaping and driving them that we could be really tempted because it's messy to just avoid and stick with those issues on the top. I, I understand that, but um, are there some other ways than a curriculum that works that way for us to, to engage? Well, and you, you draw to the surface a few super helpful, incredibly helpful things. One being that we all come to our every belief we have political relational, spiritual, with a story already formed. I tend to believe that a lot of our political positions come out of our own personal pain and anger. Mm -hmm. Where are the places that we suffer? Where are the places that we hurt? And that shapes that. But then it also, there's an outpouring of, and because we believe this, now these things will need to be taken. And a lot of that corresponds to a word you use, and I think it's an important word, but I think people get hung up on it. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about the idea of liturgy, the idea of, you know, there is a liturgy that's going on that is shaping us. And that's not just a church word, but that's a that's got a bigger connotation. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I actually, just a few weeks ago, I was watching, virtually participating, I would rather say than watching, virtually participating in a church service with my parents. And it was a typical, like low evangelical, you know, kind of service. There was no, what I would have considered before, you know, going to seminary and, and doing the research for the book, no liturgy from my perspective. And yet that particular service, there was one song and then the pastor got up to preach. And I was like, kind of discombobulated because I was like, where's the three songs and the announcements and then the other song. And it, like, that doesn't follow the order. <laughs> like what's happening here, you know? And it just reminded me of like, we think in some of our churches, especially like there's the high churches that are doing the liturgy. And then there's us that are spontaneous and, you know, free. And yet we have an order of service and our bodies, even more than our brains sometimes kind of know we sit down at this point, you know, there's this one song that they'll let us sit, you know, maybe there's a more high energy song. We'll all stand and we'll all kind of do that. You know, there's motions to things. And, and I think the churches I grew up in going through the motions is just the worst thing ever. And so if it feels like there's an order, there's a kind of set repetitive thing, then that's so wrong. And yet I think in our desire to kind of move away from that, we just made ourselves less critical of our own habits and rituals about things, you know? And so for me, when I use the word liturgy in the book, it's really just, are there repetitive embodied uh, practices that you have that are shaping you because inherent in them is a larger story about the world. And sometimes those can be like really deep, right? You know, the songs that we sing in church, the, the scripture that we read publicly, the story imbued in those practices is a really grand, important story that has, you know, puts demands on your whole life. But sometimes when I, you know, brush my teeth every day, <laughs> there's a story of dental health is important and I should trust dentists and they've told me to do that. You know, there's still a story involved in that. It's a pretty weak story. And if I learned tomorrow that brushing your teeth is not important, I probably could get over that pretty quickly. 
but there's still a story involved in it. And especially when it comes to politics, the, the heart of using that word liturgy was to try and get people to think about what are the habits in my life that I just uncritically, you know, consume media, have conversations, you know, have these practices with my neighbors or with my community. These are the normal parts of my life, the grocery store I shop at, the school that my kids go to, you know, all those things that I think of as just normal life. Is there a story behind them that I am learning, whether I realize it or not? And then when I go to church and hear a sermon or when I step into a voting booth, that story is there. And I've kind of uncritically accepted it because I haven't, I've thought, liturgy is this other thing or rituals or habit. that's, you know, for someone else, instead of going, oh, I do the same thing, you know, every day or every week. And how is it shaping and forming me and changing, not just what I believe in my heart, maybe what I don't realize I believe, but also then how I act when the river hits the road. And, and there's something important that I need to respond to. I love, I personally am, you know, I'm a part of a, a pastor at an evangelical church that occupies, and you talked about low church. I want to do a little bit with that like low is not a quality statement it's a it's to distinguish between low what would be called low church which is very informal uh kind of free-flowing a lot of non-denominational churches and then high church which is more of the formal you know either book of common prayer revised common lectionary you know traditions that are more a bit more formal and what they do when they gather but what I love about the high church liturgy is that you actually have a chance because you're not creating everything and because there's an expectation of what's coming to to contemplate, to actually think about what you're hearing mm. and the readings of scripture. And so I can't hear that without thinking of the other contemplative moments we have, the other liturgies we have, like the liturgy of our media consumption, the liturgy of our Fox News or our CNN or who we follow on Twitter or the people we honor on Facebook. Do you, do you think that that, that sense of like contemplation, that deep consideration is something that most people know that they're doing or is it more just the story is so embedded in us that we don't, we, we have trouble critically critiquing it. We have trouble critiquing it. Yeah, I think especially when it comes to politics, I think we have this idea of I'm just getting information or I'm just kind of going through the motions, doing the things that you're supposed to do and not realizing how deep the stories and how kind of far reaching the stories embedded in politics are. And so I think if we were talking about media consumption habits or if we were talking about you know the everyday habits of our life and we were talking about something that wasn't that didn't have a story that was so all-encompassing it would be a little different like the toothbrush example right like i would be less concerned <laughs> about you know the habits of someone you know i would like people to brush their teeth every day but i'm less concerned about their toothbrushing habits because the story that's behind it is not so captivating and all-consuming in the way that political stories are and so i think people especially about media consumption habits. I think people think, yeah, I should watch less TV or I should be on social media less, you know, especially in the new year, people will think like, I should have a resolution about how much time I spend. But they're not also thinking about not just diversifying their, you know, consumption or kind of putting limits on how much time, but really trying to think through what is this habit doing for me in terms of the stories I believe about the world? Um, what story is this advertisement or this you know, media person or this person I follow on Twitter? What is the larger story that's behind those things? And I think if we could do that, if we, if we came in more with a lens of a powerful story is being sold to me and it is inevitably going to be a story that conflicts with the gospel, I think we would be more critical of those habits, but we tend to go in and just think, I'm getting political information, right? Like I have to vote. So I'm going to, you know, learn some information about the candidates. And it's like, that's, that would be great if it was ever like that, but it's not. And it, and it kind of can't be right because politics deals with our common good, you know, things. And it deals with the story of our communities and it deals with our fears and desires. And so even the best politician, even the most faithful person, if they're a Christian, they're trying to do the right thing. I hope that the story that they tell you about what they're, you know, their kind of time in leadership would be is a story that doesn't conflict too much with the gospel. <laughs> but at the same time, like regardless of, of how faithful they're trying to be, the world of politics is going to 
you know, impress those kinds of stories on us. Even the most faithful person is going to care as a politician about, you know, the prosperity and security of the nation that they are trying to represent. And that can be a really good thing, but it is really hard for that story to not become the primary story, the all encompassing story that, that captivates our hearts. And I don't think we go in thinking that that possibility is really there because we think we have a lot of power. <laughs> we think we have the ability to stop that from happening. And I think we overestimate ourselves. So in in the what you propose instead is what you call spiritual formation in a political direction. Um, so these two streams that we've separated or dammed off, they they begin to flow back into each other. Uh, what is what does that look like? So if you could paint a picture of the vision behind the story behind spiritual formation in a political direction, what does that look like? Yeah, I think especially, like you said earlier, in the moment that we're in right now, where we're just, we're seeing a lot of disorder and a lot of chaos and and violence and evil at times, I think it starts with, for individuals, and then especially for pastors and leaders that are over communities, to spend some time thinking about what really are the stories that impact my people, Um, because they won't be the same everywhere. I tried in the book to give some examples that are relevant for American Christians in particular, but I've gotten so many emails and letters from people that are like, well, in my community, it's more this, Like, that's great. Like you should spend some time thinking about what stories captivate my people. Um, and that's, that's why local leaders are so important instead of thinking about the big national voices for Christians, but think about could a pastor in a local community, could a family member in a family or someone who lives in a community or, you know, me, I live around a bunch of seminary students. Could we have the ability to kind of think through really what are the stories impacting us? And then to think from a spiritual formation perspective about what are the habits and practices of my community and really truly not just the ones that we're super aware of, right? You know, yes, let's look at the lyrics to the songs we sing. I think that really matters. Yes, let's think about, you know, what sermons are being given or what, you know, kind of standing and sitting and all the kinds of, you know, normal things we do in a service. But then let's also think about what are the, you know, for my family or for my community, like what are my habits when it comes to my neighbors or to people who look different than me or to people who are immigrants or refugees in my community? Like, what are my habits for having people around my table look like? Or what are my habits about where I shop for my groceries or the school that I go, you know, thinking about in our own communities, very broadly, what are our spiritual formation kind of practices? And then asking, are those in conflict with those captivating stories? Are they pushing back sufficiently against those stories? Or are they actually, because we've sort of twisted them, we're really good at taking a good thing God has given us and kind of twisting it a little bit. Are they actually just allowing us to continue taking in those stories without anything confronting them? And and like I said before, that's why the book is so um, not prescriptive about, you know, I have some things where I'm like, it would be great um, if you followed a lectionary (laughs) or like, it would be great if we did communion, you know, with these things in mind or baptism with these things in mind. But But I really wanted it to be applicable to different communities to say like, I'm not going to tell you what your church should be doing about those things or, you know, the order of your service or whatever, but could you just ask the questions of are the practices, those repeated bodily things that my people are doing every week. And then maybe even in their everyday lives every day, are they pushing back against those dominant stories or are they allowing them to just continue unchallenged? Uh, One of the, one of the conversations I hear often is, it eventually boils down to the single issue voting conversation and that we will hang our spiritual hat on a single issue and it tends to be abortion, but there, there are other ones. That's the one that I'm, I'm most in in conversation about. Mm -hmm. How does the, how does spiritual formation and some of the practices that you talk about, how does it cut across that, that sort of least common denominator tendency we have to say, well, you don't want to see this happen. You know, basically giving into that big fear that it's inevitable that if this person gets elected, then this, the only key issue is going to blow up in our faces. Um, How does this process, this spiritual formation in a political direction cut across that? 
or at least help us contemplate it a bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things you just said there that's so important is is fear, um, fear and desire and loves. Um, one of the things that it does is try to kind of hopefully redirect um, our orientation to the world, or at least that first step of seeing the stories says, what are our fears? What are our desires? What are the stories that, that animate us? When we think about what makes a community good? What do we think, you know, drawing those out so that then even if we're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone, you know, I talk a lot about spiritual formation, but then it does end up being a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people too. There is the reasoned part of it as well. If we've teased out those fears and desires, it's easier then to have the conversation about, okay, when you say this person is going to destroy America. <laughs> Can we talk about what fears and desires are kind of underlying that? Could we address them? Could we recognize together as, as carefully and compassionately as we can, where some of those fears are not fears a Christian should have, or those are desires a Christian shouldn't have, you know? But the other thing, and one of the things that I'm really convicted about is that we think we go into a voting booth and we have rationed out, you know, we've reasoned out here's, you know, the way I'm going to vote. And this is the best way to vote. And I think our political lives, not just the way we vote, because I think it involves, you know, if we write letters to, to elected representatives, if we help, you know, volunteer at a community center, all those things are our political participation. So much of that is more motivated by little um, orientations and impulses that are learned through our habits in our life, rather than how we have reasoned out the right way to live. And so my hope would be that if we're really thinking through, and especially for me, it comes down to those habits about who's at your table, who are you involved in, what neighborhood do you live in, how are you engaging with people who are different from you, those kinds of habits over time should, you know, maybe in ways we don't even realize, end up changing the priorities that we have politically. Not to say, you know, for example, it's the same in my context. Abortion is is the most, you know, prominent single issue kind of voting orientation people have. Not to say that's not important, not to say that you don't prioritize that in certain cases, but that are the habits of your life making you aware, even just on like a really basic level, aware of the needs of other people to the point where you didn't mean one year to go in and vote with this as your you know main priority. And then the next year you've kind of really rationally changed your mind and now it's a different one. But do you go in the next year and you've learned to love different things and you've been exposed to different people and it hasn't been, and I hate to, you know, I know pastors would love to hear that it's usually a single sermon, you know, that's like changes someone's mind. But I think we all know it doesn't usually work that way. It's over time. Are you exposed? Is your heart being kind of shifted in a different direction? And maybe you vote the same way. I'm not sure. But are you going into that voting booth with a different orientation towards the world, with a different set of loves and desires that might motivate you not only to vote a little differently or maybe not, but then especially to interact with your community in ways that are different. You know, I'm concerned about how people vote, but I'm also concerned about how the way that they vote then changes what they think matters when it comes to just the way they serve in their community. Do you, we think that those are separate spheres, but they're usually not. You know, the things you prioritize there are the things you prioritize in your community. And hopefully those little habits will change those things that you prioritize. Oh my, boy, there's so much there. One of the gifts in that that I hear is is the power of community and the power of hearing mm. other people's stories. But one of the one of the challenges to that, and you in the chapter where you talk about reading the Bible, you bring this up, is that our communities are becoming more and more homogenous, more and more the same, and more and more divided. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it, we can't read Scripture in a way that helps us. But at the same time, the only way that we can get past that homogeny and division is to read scripture in a way. So it's the it's this vicious cycle that we're in. Yeah. And you know, I have a I have a family friend who is a DACA recipient. And the conversations about politics in the last four years for me, especially around that conversation have changed dramatically if for no other reason than when I hear a term, I see a face. Yeah. How do, how do we begin, especially if we're talking to people who are not pastors and leaders, but people who are involved in these communities, when they look around, they're like, we are, and, the, and I'm not saying this in a pejorative way, but they're just observing, like we are super white and we are yeah. super wealthy. And there are limitations to that. How do we, how does someone begin to rehab their community or, or, or diversify 
that conversation. I'm asking yeah, you for the I mean, silver bullet, clearly. You know, that's right. <laughs> that's like asking for a, can I borrow a million dollars while we're at it? You know, right. <laughs> you know I, I do think one of the first things I think of, though, is just for all of the kind of curses of the internet, one of the, the positive things is we have access to more information, more perspectives than we ever had. And, and that takes a lot of discernment to know, how, you know, how to find who to listen to and what to read. Um, but I do think, and, and sometimes that can be sort of a, an easy first step and it ends there, right? Oh, I read the books. You told me to read the books about race or the books about immigration. I did it. We're done, you know, but, but really to start with the amazing wealth of resources that we have both in the internet and in our libraries, you know, if you have the ability to, to drive to a library near you, then, I mean, you just have a wealth of resources, but I do think it has to start there, even though that shouldn't be kind of the, the panacea that ends it, but starting there and then really thinking about, I think sometimes we look very immediately near us and see a lot of, you know, the same. And yet, I mean, at least in the area that I live in, I can go a neighborhood over and it is a different world. And it is really scary <laughs> to try and think about what it would be like to really be in a place that's very different from one I'm comfortable with. Um, and I do think sometimes, sometimes it's very true, you know, for miles around us, the community is exactly the same, but sometimes we use that as an excuse when it's just, it would be really uncomfortable for me to try. It'd be really easy for me to find a ministry serving in a lower income neighborhood that's much more, you know, racially and ethnically diverse and serve in a soup kitchen. And I think that could be a good thing to do. That would be more comfortable and probably not as helpful as actually building relationships that are not, um, relationships that are more reciprocal <laughs> that, you know, I give you something and you give me something and it doesn't have to always feel like I'm the one serving you. Um, and I mean, on a really, a really big step that I've seen some people I love do really faithfully is they literally moved. <laughs> they literally moved to a community where they were like, I don't know how to serve you if I don't actually live here. Like, I don't know how to not be sort of paternalistic unless I actually have like sacrificed something to be in this community. That's a, a step that a lot of people won't be able to take or might not take immediately. Um, but I do think in the short term, finding ways to like start in the community center or start in the soup kitchen or whatever, but be really intentional about not having you just be serving, <laughs> which is really good. It's a really good thing. But um, when I think about the things that have most impacted my perspective on the world, it's people that brought a dish to my house and we had dinner together. And it wasn't just, I have something to give to you, but the posture of you've had experiences in your life that aren't just like fascinating to me, which is sometimes what we can do, but that really I have to, I have to learn from you. There is something I am missing that you can give me. And the reason that that, none of that probably sounds like a super precise first step answer is because like you said, it's just so hard and it so depends on your context. But I do think, I know at least for myself, I don't know who else I'm talking to, but at least I'm talking to me when I say, I give a lot of excuses about that kind of stuff to myself because it would be so uncomfortable for me to try and build those relationships other ways. And so I convince myself, you know, that my community is so much the same and I convince myself that it would be too hard to try and build it, you know, but a lot of it's just how much discomfort are you willing to take on at least initially to be able to have relationships with people who are different from you. Who, who have been your wise guides in this, who are the people or the voices or the resources that have, that have guided you as you've processed your way through this spiritual formation in a political direction? You know, honestly, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of local pastors in Dallas that I don't want to name and, and give, you know, maybe send people to them that they don't want sent to them. But I, I've read a lot of books and I've, you know, studied a lot in school, but when it comes to like what I have learned the most in my own community, the conversations I have with people that are the hardest, it tends to be finding people in my own context that like know Dallas, Texas specifically, like they know the unique things here and have been ministering here for longer than I've been alive <laughs> and have the ability to like offer some insight and, and direction. And, and I know that that's probably seems like the thing that I just keep coming back to is like local, 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 but I don't know another way that we move forward on this stuff. I, I mean, I could tell people, um, you know, to read people. I mean, I started with like Stanley Hauerwas, such as such a stereotype about like learning about American politics and Christianity. Um, I've really loved uh, Luke Brotherton and Matthew K. Mank, who's written a lot about immigration and, and spiritual formation worship stuff started with me. Um, 
but the first thing I would tell people is like, are, are, do you have people in your own community? Um, and it doesn't have to be pastors. Like for me, it tends to be pastors. Cause I'm thinking from a ministry perspective, but if you're just like, do you know a mom, you know, who lives in your neighborhood, who it seems like she really is trying to do the right thing when it comes to politics, that she's really faithful, that, you know, she might have some insight for you finding people who are really local to you that can say, yeah, I've had that conversation with someone from that church, <laughs> you know, that they've had that, you know, that kind of uh, spiritual formation context that I know well enough that I can say, here's how they'll respond, you know, when you try and have this conversation about politics, that's been the most helpful. So as you were watching the news this past week, um, and you started to see what was going on at the Capitol um, as people broke in and uh, stalled the process of certifying the 2020 election results. And you looked at it through the lens of what you'd written and what you've been thinking about. What were your, what were your thoughts and reflections as you, as you watched what was unfolding? Yeah, I, one of the things that has just, both because of that event and because of some other things in my own life and church life right now, one of the things I've been so thinking about is no one thinks they're going to end up there. Like no one probably sets out in their political journey and thinks I will one day be a part of a deadly riot at the Capitol uh, to stop an elect, to stop the certification of an election because I believe this, this larger story about election fraud and, and sometimes even, even really much larger, you know, conspiracy theory when it comes to QAnon and those kinds of things. I don't think anyone starts out going, that's where I'm going to end up. And it's been convicting for me, I think, especially younger evangelicals or loosely evangelical Christians my age that are like looking at what's happened and going, oh, you know, there are leaders doing this, these awful things, saying these awful things, look at this, you know, really bad stuff. And that, you know, an indignant response to injustice is a good, righteous response. However, I think there's this other element going on of just like, I could never be that way. That could never be me. And I have witnessed in a really personal way in my life over the last few months, people who I have trusted and believed in said and, you know, did things that I never would have believed they would say or do. And for, for that kind of firsthand, you know, experience, what was clearer to me than could be clearer to me about national leaders that disappointed me was you made a lot of really little decisions, little concessions, small changes over 20, 30 years of your life. And then it, you know, accumulated to this point. And you didn't even realize that whole time that you were kind of going in that direction. But, and at the time, maybe that little concession, that little choice didn't seem like a big deal. And it added up over time and you were oriented further and further and further towards where you ended up. And so from a spiritual formation perspective, that was just a, a really kind of extreme example and reminder of what am I doing you know, with my life and with the people that I have some level of influence over in my own context to make sure that we don't think those little decisions are unimportant, that we want to tell the truth always, even when it seems like it's a small thing, um, that we want to be, you know, as honest and have as much integrity as we possibly can, that we have people that can hold us accountable, um, really, truly. Like, I think we think we don't need it now because we don't have that much power or influence, but if you don't have it now, you're not going to have it when you're, you know, on the big stage in front of a lot of people. And so I have just been having so many conversations with people my age going, if we don't want to make really big political mistakes further in our lives, if we don't want to end up in the same place that we've seen some of our elders go that we've lamented over, we can't think that we are incapable of that. We have to recognize that little decisions over time, those kinds of habits and practices shape us in ways that we don't even intend, <laughs> that we might not realize. And then you end up in a place that you didn't intend to. Um, and so that's that's where I've been at is going, can I be faithfully connected to a community, be dependent upon God with for all of those little decisions that don't seem like a big deal um, so that when a big thing happens, when someone says, do you want to go <laughs> rush the Capitol? Or when someone says, you know, if I have a, if I have a chance to speak up about some injustice, will I be prepared? Will I be practiced in the courage to do that and the integrity to do that? Or will I have thought, I'll make a bunch of small concessions so that I can get to that place of authority and leadership that I can do, you know, I won't, I won't be able to do that if I've kind of made those little decisions along the way. So that's, 
that's where I'm at, especially with the people that are, that are most close to me and in the same kind of position that I'm in is to just say, are we making decisions now that, that will keep us faithful for longer? So with, with this book, I, I feel like all books are sort of a collation of the life of the writer. Um, you've, the good ones show where people have lived from and where they're living to. And for you, as you look at the book you've written and you look at you know, sort of the implications, and I'm sure, I, I'm, I'm assuming this, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that being a Christian, writing a book about politics, you've received some less than cordial feedback from people in the past. Yep. Um, what What is the great ache within you as far as what this book needs to do, what you what you wanted as you faithfully responded and wrote? and what what is it what was in you and what is in you now that you want to see happen? You know, for me, i I really I didn't set out. <laughs> to write a book while I was in seminary and young. And um, it all kind of, it's a long story, but it kind of all came together so perfectly and without me really doing anything that I really felt like, okay, God, I'm, just, I'm gonna be faithful to this thing that it feels so clearly you have put in front of me because I would otherwise not want, especially about politics, <laughs> to be young in seminary and like on staff at a church be like, do you wanna write? No, that seems crazy. Um, and really the thing that I kept, that kept me motivated was not so much I mean, I hope there are helpful specific things in the book that someone could say, you know, I want to adopt this spiritual practice or like my community wants to, you know, change this thing about how we worship or operate. But more than that, I just, I really hope and and the most encouraging responses that I've had are from people who say, I'm just trying to make sense of this. And it was so helpful to hear someone say, you're not crazy. Like there are things that are really wrong um, and we need to call them really wrong and we need to try, even if it's not perfect, um, to, to move away forward and to be able to offer that to people. I assumed that would be my own age. And yet it has overwhelmingly been people older than me <laughs> saying like, I just, I needed to hear, you know, I've been studying scripture my whole life and I've seen the same things, but the world is just so crazy. How, you know, it just feels like I need someone to be able to say like, yes, this is, this is what's here. Um, we need to be reminded of the task that we have to faithfully serve the communities that we're in. Um, and if I could describe that in a way that inspires someone again, not to maybe make all of the same decisions that I might hint at in the book, but just to feel like, yeah, I can, I can change some things in my community. I can, um, be faithful in small decisions and there can be some fruit that comes from that, even if I never have the opportunity to be like the prophetic voice that people want to be, you know, say all the hard stuff and be in front of a ton of people. And, and I can make a small decision, you know, I can add a practice to my own life that makes me more faithful, or I can, you know, push my community to change something small, but that has a you know great impact. Um, instead of feeling like the options are all or nothing, <laughs> you know, we get everything right or we get everything wrong, but could I just, could I make a small choice that, that does something positive for my community? And could it really matter the fact that it has an impact on politics? Could that actually be something that matters for my community and for the coming kingdom of God? Small steps, small steps. Thanks for the conversation today. It's been a blessing. I know people are going to receive that too when they read your book and, um, I really appreciate your faithfulness in this and and for whatever uh, it's worth, whatever criticism you've taken, um, I pray that that's only strengthened you to keep doing this kind of work. Thank you. As you think about this episode and this conversation, I want to invite you to consider something. I want to invite you to think about your own political position right now, the things you value from candidates, the things that you share on social media because they represent what you believe, and think about what the deeper story is behind that. Why are those things important? Do they reflect a family tradition, 
well, my parents were always Republicans, so that's how we vote. Do they reflect a fear, a fear of change in the world, a fear of maybe a fear of diversity? You don't have to share this with anyone, but are, are you afraid? Are you a white Christian afraid of a world that is becoming more and more diverse? not because you fear people, but because you fear living in a place that you don't know how it operates because for the longest time, it has operated in a way that made sense to white evangelical Christians in a lot of ways, but white people in general. Is there an anger in you? Is there maybe a feeling of loss from your past that's animating what you believe. I'm asking you to identify those things because until we can wrap our hands around the stories that feed our politics, we will never know how to follow the formational path of repentance and forgiveness. And we'll never be able to move forward. And that's what I believe Caitlin was getting at in this conversation. Caitlin Chess is a staff writer at Christ and Pop Culture. Her writing has also appeared at Christianity Today, Relevant, and Fathom Magazine. She lives in Dallas, Texas. She's a graduate of Liberty University in 2016, where she went into talking about government, and eventually the road wound around and led her to the point of writing her most recent book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. You can find a link to where you can get that in the show notes and also to her website where you can find out more information about Caitlin. If you're listening on any of the platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, thank you so much for listening and subscribing, hopefully, and rating and reviewing, please. If you're listening on my website, thank you so much for that. Feel free to drop me a line and say, drop me a line. Boy, we don't say that anymore, do we? Feel free to uh, to send me an email or a note or a message and just let me know what, what could be done to make this a better conversation platform for you. And my friends, as you go this week, may you listen to spirit, identify for you the pains and challenges and underlying stories that inform your politics so that we all might be formed into the kind of people politically, corporately, spiritually that God had in mind for us to be. Until next time. Be well, live wisely. Peace, friends.